Uh, to start off the sermon, let me just ask you a question. Um, would you be able to say that Jesus Christ is alive in you this morning? Um, to put it another way, who or what is alive in you this morning? When I was younger, my fascination was really wrapped up in Corvettes. That was what I wanted to drive someday. I wanted to put my hands on the wheel and my foot on the gas pedal. I wanted to control that vehicle. We could ask, who is controlling you? Who's got the hands on the steering wheel? Who's got the foot on the gas pedal? What is it that is driving you today? Is it a thought is it an emotion that has been just taking up residence in your heart for a week or perhaps for years? Is there a fear that has been there just presently and it seems to be driving you along, moving you along? And when you look inward, if you were to say, man, something is alive in me, and you would say, it's that fear that's alive in me. Or maybe it's something else. It's a drive for something in life where you just haven't attained it yet. It's the dream that you haven't realized yet. And you might say, that's what's alive in me. That's what moves me along. There's, there's a range of things from, from very hurtful things to maybe even hopeful things. But the question that I wrestled with this last week as I studied the passage and just looked for applications that pull out of this is... Would you be able to say, very honestly, Jesus is alive in me? If you're joining us today for the first time, we're in the book of Galatians. We just work verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph, and we're coming to a hinge in the book or a corner in the book. The first two chapters were, if you will, the historical section of the book. Uh, in this section, the first two chapters that we've covered already, we realize that there are churches in this region called Galatia. They've slipped into error, theological error. They're denying the gospel in so many different ways. They hold to Jesus as the one whom they have to uh, believe in, but they don't believe in him exclusively. It's Jesus and the and is followed up by works of the law. So they believe in Jesus, and they're also saying, we have to have the religion of Judaism, which we've known for several millennia, coming along with us. And so we have to practice circumcision. We have to observe certain feasts and days. We have to have certain eating rules and dietary laws that we follow. And in this section, what Paul comes to him, he basically confronts them. And he calls them out for it. And he says in verses 6 and following, I am so astonished that you are turning away from the gospel of faith in Jesus Christ to believe in another gospel, not that there is another gospel. He calls them out on it. And then in anticipation that they might say, well, Paul, who gives you the authority to be able to call us out on it? In this section, chapters 1 and 2, Paul defends his authority as an apostle. Historically speaking, he says, here's what Jesus did in my life. He appeared to me on the road to Damascus. He spoke the gospel to me. I took that gospel. I went to the apostles. We had not met, and we find out that we're sharing the same gospel with one another or with people. And then he also says, and I, and I even had to confront one of the apostles, the apostle Peter, because he was in sin, and, and they accepted my confrontation. Paul takes that confrontation that he had with Peter, and we started it last week. 
he takes that confrontation that he has with Peter and explains the real ingredients and elements of the gospel to Peter. And he says, that same conversation that I had with Peter about the ingredients and the elements, the basics of the gospel, is so needed for you right now. And so what he does in verse 14, he starts talking to us about Peter. And he says, I had to approach Peter. I had to confront him to his face. And then I had to start talking about justification with him. And this is what you need right now for where you are in your life. Okay, so a few uh, points or a few questions, I should say, for our sermon this morning, just so you can have handles to follow along. I'm going to give you three questions, and I will give them to you as we go through the sermon. The first question is simply this, how am I justified? How am I justified? Justification, which we're going to define in a few minutes, is necessary because of our sin. Going back to Peter. Peter had sinned, and how is it that he had sinned? Again, we had covered this last week. He went up to the church in Antioch, and he was checking out the ministry that was going on there, and he, as a Jew, was sitting down with Gentiles and having a meal there. And when some religious leaders showed up from Jerusalem, they were actually Christian leaders, Jewish Christian leaders from the church in Jerusalem, sent from James. They showed up in Antioch. Peter sees them walk into the room, and he stands up from the table that he's eating with at Gentiles, and he moves to a different table, and he goes over and sits with ethnic Jews. So imagine this. Um, you know our Sunday night fellowships in the gymnasium. Once a month, we gather in there. All the crockpots and all the plates are out there. And you walk into the gymnasium, and you see me and the pastors and several uh, teachers and leaders in the church um, we're scattered all over the place in the gymnasium, sitting at tables. And at the tables, there are Jewish Christians sitting at that table. And, and it's obvious because we from Grand Haven, October, it's done nothing but rain, no skin. We're lily white, okay? And there are some Jewish Christians who are sitting there. And, and you walk in there and you can say, man, this is a beautiful picture. This is an awesome thing where... Jews and Gentiles, I'm a Gentile, can come together around Christ, and I see their fellowship happening. So you're sitting there, you're observing this, you're like, this is a wonderful picture. But all of a sudden, some distinguished-looking individuals walk through the door into the gymnasium, stand over in the corner, and just start observing. And you see me all of a sudden stand up from my table where I was sitting with Jewish Christians, I'm like, um, I scuttle across the gymnasium to other Grand Havenites, and I sit at the cafeteria tables, and I put my plate and my cup down, and I try to act like nothing happened. And then all of a sudden, the other pastors, they stand up, and they start shuffling across the gymnasium, and they sit down at the cafeteria tables. And then all of you, Lily White Grand Havenites, stand up, and you move over to tables, and you see this new this new sort of, the dust has settled, and here's tables with just Jews, Jewish Christians, and then you have tables with Gentiles over here. And you ask yourself, how in the world did that happen? Well, what Peter did is he did that 
Except a little bit of a flip-flop, he was sitting with the Gentile Christians and some Jewish leaders walked in and these Jewish leaders were well-known down in Jerusalem and it says that Peter feared the circumcision party. So I think the circumcision party is non-Christians, Jews, Jews who were connected to persecuting Christians. And, and Peter's like, I got to go back down to Jerusalem and I don't want to face those people. So I'm fearing them and I'm moving away from my brothers in Christ out of fear. And Paul confronts him to his face and he says, that's not right at all. And so he says it in verse 15, moving along. He says in verse 15, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. All right, so just a quick little uh, attention note here in your text. The conversation that Paul has with Peter in your English text, it appears to end at verse 14 because you see quotation marks there. That's not a good place for the quotation marks. That's just an English insertion. The Greek text does not have quotation marks in it. Paul's conversation continues on at least through verse 16, if not all the way down to verse 21. So when he says in verse 15, we ourselves are Jews by birth, he's talking to Peter. He's like, hey, we descended from Abraham. We're ethnic Jews. And this is who we are. And we're not Gentile sinners. And why does he call the Gentile sinners? Well, the Jews had received the laws of, of Moses. They knew the Ten Commandments. They knew how to walk in obedience with God, but not the Gentiles. The Gentiles didn't have the law of God, so they were looked at as those who had no restraint. So Paul can say this. We know there is an obvious difference between Jews and Gentiles, but look at verse 16. He brings them together with this phrase, Yet we know that a person. And when he says that a person, he's saying that that person who is either a Jew or is either a Gentile is justified. And how is that person justified? He goes on to say that they are justified not by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ so we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Now, Paul is unpacking this doctrine of justification for us. And he says here that no one can be justified by works of the law. All right, so we have to start asking the question, what is justification? Justification is simply this. It is the declaration that God gives to a person's life that says, you are not guilty. It's that declaration. The opposite of justification is the term condemnation that we read about in the Bible. And the term condemnation would be God saying, you are guilty of these things. And so Paul is telling Peter this, a person, no matter what religious background you come from at this point, that's all wiped aside, a person who is going to have a right standing before God is declared innocent on what basis? Well, first he states it negatively. You are not declared just on the basis of works of the law. 
And so the works of the law that he's talking about is the Mosaic law that God had given Moses at Sinai. The law was never meant to be a tool that saved people. I think we have to understand this as we read our New Testament. How were people saved in the Old Testament? Were they saved by doing works? No. A proper understanding of salvation in the Old Testament goes all the way back to Abraham in Genesis 15. God comes to Abraham and he makes a covenant with him. And it says that Abraham believed the promises of God and God counted it to him as what? As righteousness. And then you keep going through the Bible and you come to verses like what the prophet Habakkuk says in Habakkuk 2, where he says, the just shall live by what? The just shall live by faith. Not by works of the law are you going to be justified. The law was a tool. It was meant to be like a boundary marker for the people of God to live in and to have fellowship and communion with God. And so Paul can say, with, with great respect to the law of the Old Testament, he can say, listen, the era of that law, it has come to an end because Christ is here. And yet, you need to know that no man is ever going to stand before God and be declared just because he climbed up the ladder of the law, each wrong a good work, each wrong a good work, and finally made it up to heaven. That's not it. So what does he say instead? What is justification here? Well, or what is, how is a person going to be justified? Verse 16, he says it three times in the negative way, not by works of the law, not by works of the law, not by works of the law, but positively, a person is going to be justified by what? By faith in Christ. Here we are, two elements that I want you to see here. Justification comes by faith in Christ. The emphasis here is really not going to be the faith, although that's part of it. The emphasis is going to be what the faith lays hold of. You see, you can believe in a number of things, but belief itself does not save a person. It's the object of someone's belief that Paul says is going to save a person. A person is justified or declared innocent because their faith lays hold of Jesus Christ. What is it about Jesus Christ that God sees fit to say, okay, if, if your heart has been attached to Jesus by faith, what is it that God can say, because of that faith in Jesus Christ, you are declared innocent? What is it that God sees? He sees Jesus. He sees the object of your faith. So Paul unpacks this in chapter 3. So just look over at chapter 3, verse 13 for a moment. Chapter 3, verse 13. What is it about Christ that saves us? Chapter 3, verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And that little word for is super important. Christ became a curse for us or in the place of us or on behalf of us. And this is where you could use the term substitution. Here you are standing condemned. God could look over his judicial bench and say, I see all of your guilty works. You're condemned. 
And yet, what happens is a substitution takes place for the person who is standing before the bench. Christ becomes the curse for us standing right down there. And when Christ becomes the curse for us, he's standing in our place. He's taking the whole legal weight and consequences of God's justice upon himself, substituting himself in our place, and bearing the punishment for the sins, the punishment that we deserved. So our faith in Jesus is a faith that believes in substitution. We believe that Jesus took the curse for our sin and that the death he died was truly enough for our salvation. And Paul is telling Peter this, hey, look, your little move over here Scurrying away from the Gentiles because the law did say it did have dietary restrictions and it did have laws about people who were clean and unclean. But Paul is saying this, hey, you need to realize this, that you leaving the Gentiles over here to go sit with your Jewish Christian friends over here, mm -mm, that doesn't square with the gospel. It might square with people down in Jerusalem, but it doesn't square with who God is. It doesn't square with what you hold to in the deepest parts of your heart. This is inconsistent. A person is justified not by works of the law, but by holding to Jesus Christ. So the object of our, of our faith is Jesus Christ. Now, I want to come back to faith. Faith is absolutely necessary for us to lay hold of Christ. So it's not simply enough that Christ died for sins. Therefore, all people are ushered before God's bench and God says, because Christ died for everyone, now I just give everyone the verdict of justified. That's not enough, although some actually teach that. What's needed is we come before the bench we are looking at Christ, the one who substituted himself for our sins, and we're saying, by faith, I have laid hold of Christ. I believe in him. I don't believe in good works. I don't believe in, in any other deity. I lay hold of Christ who lived the perfectly sinless life and offers that life as a gift to me and takes my sins upon himself. Faith is the act by which we lay hold of Christ. So you might be a non-Christian here this morning, and, and you're hearing the basics of the gospel. You've heard things like, we are sinners. We're all sinners. Nate is a sinner. I stand condemned before God, but I need to be justified. And the hope that I have is nothing that I can do. It's not by works that I can climb this ladder up to heaven. It's by Jesus Christ who lived the perfect sinless life, and I lay hold of him in faith. Justification happens when Christ has become my Savior, I believe in him, and God grants me a verdict that says, you're innocent now. I see you through the person of Jesus Christ. He was substituted for you. That's justification. Now, Paul is walking through that in verse 16. This doctrinal section now that we're moving into is going to go all the way through the end of chapter 4. And in this verse, the anticipation comes up in verse 17 and following. Does justification promote sin? 
Okay, so that's the second question in this little paragraph and the second point to the sermon. Does justification promote sin? So look at verse 17. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. Okay, so what's his logic here? Because I, you know, I'll read that through for the first time, and I'm just wondering, Paul, what do you mean by that, if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ? Well, here's what he's talking about. If I've come to the realization that Christ is the only one by whom I can be justified, and my sins are placed upon him, and I get his righteousness, and that's who I am, then the natural question is this. Well, if, if you get that kind of gift on one hand, you get the gift of being declared innocent all the time, why not just run around and party it up? Why not just sin anytime you want because you've got the gift of Jesus all over you? Is that what's going to happen in the life of a believer? Paul says, we were found to be sinners. Is Christ a servant of sin? Absolutely not. Christ is not serving us to move into sin. Verse 18. Here's where he gets to it. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. And here's where he just says it. Like, if I go back to where I came from, what's my alternative? It's either Christ or it's trying to be justified by works of the law. And Paul looks at his past and he can say, man, I lived according to the law. I lived in such a way that was blinded to the true purpose of the law. I wanted that law kept so that I could be measured before God as being innocent and righteous. And if I go back to that, if I go back to what I tore down after I was saved, I tore down. His testimony was this. It's really cool. On his way to Damascus, Christ appears to him. He's saved. He comes back to Damascus and starts preaching that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Messiah. In other words, the law is not my way to heaven. If I go back to that message of preaching the law is my way, he's like, then I'm a true sinner. I'm a true transgressor. Sin is ramped up when you live according to the law for your justification. Sin is heightened when you put a list of rules next to your life and constantly compare yourself to them. Even if you keep them, you become a person of pride who, like the Pharisees, were impressed with how good they were. Jesus came up to them, and you know what he said to them. Hey, you look great on the outside, but you're whitewashed tombs. You're full of dead, deadness and rottenness on the inside. Okay, so how did Paul move forward? How did Paul move forward? Point number three to the sermon. Simply this, who is alive in me? Who is alive in me? Verses 19 through 21. He says this, For through the law I died to the law that I might live to God. Okay, another tough statement. How do you go through something and die to something? He says, For through the law I died to the law. Again, Paul is talking to Peter and he's talking about his own past. He's like, man, I've tried this and I'm dead to it now. Let me give you an illustration. Some of you have tried golf, and out of your frustration with golf, 
you dumped all your clubs. You're like, I went through it. I spent the money on it. I spent three hours on Saturdays trying to get better and better at this. I went through golf, and because I went through it, I'm dead to it. I'm done with it. All right, that's a silly illustration. Let me give you something a little more pertinent. Some of you have grown up in very legalistic settings where law was what you felt. Yeah, there was a little Jesus that was sprinkled in with it. For decades, you grew up under an authoritarian tone, an authoritarian just blanket. The air that you breathed was all about the rules that you kept. And by going through that, at some point, you started to taste the sweetness of Jesus and you started to see, wait a second, you have set up a standard of works that you want me to measure up to in order to be righteous according to your standard, Mr. or Mrs. So-and-so. I'm dead to that now. I don't want anything to do with that kind of thinking in my mind because Jesus has come so alive to me that he's my hope. And so you walk through that and you're like, I lived through it and now I'm dead to it. I want nothing to do with that anymore because I see who Jesus is and the gift that he is to me. On the other hand, some of you grew up or might still be in a very Christ-less, Christ-absent environment where you lived for yourself, enjoying the thrills, and it was fun living life in the fast lane until some point. The enjoyment and the fun became very empty. And you look at it and you're like, I went through the sinful life, and through the sinful life, I died to it. An inward death happens in one's life. Paul had lived by the law, but when Christ got a hold of him on the road to Damascus, he died to the law. And the life that he was living, it was so distasteful. The legalism of it now is so ugly in his mind. The pride that it cultivated by comparing himself to others and hustling others into his form of legalism, it was now done. He had had enough of that. He was dead to it. But what happened when he died to the law? It's like a seed that's planted, right? The seed has to die, but something comes in and, and grows up from that. Something happens. What happened when Paul died to the law? Look what it says. For through the law, I died to the law, and here's the purpose, or here's the outcome, that I might live to God. You can't live to God if you're going to live for something else. Paul is saying, I'm no longer enslaved. I'm no longer wrapped up by the ropes of where I was. I'm no longer enslaved to the standard of the law. I'm free to live in a meaningful relationship with God. And he's discovered a sweetness at this point. You see, this is a challenge, folks. This is a challenge that I think a lot of folks have grown up in and it's sad to hear about it that the rules and the laws that were imposed by people because they had their preferences and their understandings of how that verse ought to be understood, they just came down like heavy weights on people. 
And people were constantly looking over their shoulder like, am I doing it right? Am I pleasing you? Because if I don't, you know, I, I fear you like Peter feared what would happen to him. And so there's this constant looking over your shoulder. Am I just in your eyes? Am I justified in your eyes? Am I, am I well-pleasing in your eyes? Because am I keeping these laws right? And Paul's like, hey, there's a movement forward for you. You have to die to that. The basics of the gospel are these, that you die an inward death because it's not people who declare you to be innocent. It's God who declares you to be innocent. And when you die to those rules and standards of the law, you find yourself living in freedom. So when we get to chapter 5, Paul is going to say, for freedom, Christ has set you free. Don't submit yourselves again to this yoke, this bondage of slavery. Is it that the rules are bad? Is that morality is bad? No, it's not that. It's that they can become such a burden that you're living up to that as the standard and thinking that's just going to make me right. No, it's Christ who has made you right over here. So Paul has died an inward death to where he was before. Now, how in the world did Paul get there? How did it happen so that he could truly be alive to God? Verse 20 says this, I have been crucified with Christ. Here is this inward death that takes place. A death to the law happens, but notice there's another death that happens, and this is a death that is actually sweet in its nature. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. Christ died 2,000 years ago, and when he died, Christian, Paul is saying, we experienced a participation in his death as well. His death is timeless. It was reaching backwards to those who would believe the promises of God. It's reaching forward to those who would believe in Jesus himself. And then in wonderful words, look at how Paul writes this. He says, when I died with Christ, I've, I've got this participation with him. I'm with him. It is no longer I who live. So I don't have to worry so much about who I am. It's no longer I who live, but who lives in me? It's Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So here he says, if I had the law dying in my inward part, I'm no longer controlled by that. What am I controlled by? He says, Christ is alive in me. And this... some. Folks, this is something more than just words. This is something that is wonderful for us to, to think through and, and just meditate on. Christ is somehow alive in me. I can understand the words, but I can't fully grasp it. That as a believer, you have union with Christ where Christ is alive in you. Let me give you some texts. 2 Corinthians 13 verse 5 says this. Do you not realize this about yourselves? That Jesus Christ is in you. Colossians 1:27. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ is in you. Ephesians chapter 3. Verses 16 and 17, Paul is running with a thought, and we'll pick it up here, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being 
so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So here's the truth. Believer, Christ is in you. And and at times, what we do is we revert from that. And, And we give ourselves over to something else, much like Peter had given himself over. Was Peter still a Christian at that point? Yes, he was. And we're like Peter. Sometimes we find ourselves giving ourselves over to our desires, giving ourselves over to our fears, giving ourselves over to these like ambitions that unless we have them, we won't have life. And we find ourselves actually enslaved to them. And that's where Peter went. And Paul is saying, look, man, you're violating the basics of the gospel. Christ is alive in you. You can live for him. You can let Christ's life live through you. One of the amazing truths here, the motives for this, is that Paul says, he loved me and he gave himself for me. So the the Christ, the Messiah who's in you, is not taking up residence in a reluctant way. Contrary to that, he's pursued you. He's come after you. Perhaps like a wandering sheep, A shepherd that goes after the wandering sheep and says, I will get my sheep. My sheep will be mine. I will bring him into the fold. We will be one. I'm not going to lose the people whom God has given to me. Here it is, Christ saying, he loved me and gave himself up for me. One of the just wonderful mysteries again that we can think on is that Christ dwells in you. You can live every second of the day knowing that Christ is in you. You know that in your darkest times, you have the ministry of Christ within you. You know that in your uncertain times, Christ is in you. You know that when faced with temptation to sin, you can say, Christ, you're alive in me. Like, you drive this thing. I want to live to you. And again, non-Christian, this is the reality of the gospel. When you lay hold of Jesus Christ, by faith, God looks at you over the judicial bench, if you will, and says, you're innocent. You're like, what about all my sins? They're on Jesus. This is the love that he has for you. This is why he gave himself for you, to take those sins upon himself. And so you can look at that and say, I am I I am loved. I am loved deeply by Jesus. And on Christian, this is is the invitation for you to receive Jesus, even right now in your heart, where you would say, God loves me that he would give Jesus to me in this way? Yes. And this is how your sins are forgiven and dealt with through Jesus alone. And so this morning, you just need to lay hold of Jesus. The Bible says, by faith in your heart, not by works over here, but by faith in your heart. In Jesus. This affects us all on a very personal level. For the Christian, we know that Christ is in us, that we're loved. He gave himself for us. This affects the way that we look at people. We circle back to where we started. Remember, Peter was fearing people. He was fearing what they thought of him. And yet the reality of the gospel is this. I don't have to impress other people. I don't have to earn justification in the eyes of anyone. 
I can die to my old way of life of trying to be a people pleaser. And instead, in that moment, I can have Christ be alive in me. And I can say, all right, Christ, I need to be surrendered to you. How would you relate to this person? And that's how I want to relate to them, not how I would typically relate to them. I had a conversation this last week with somebody outside of the church. And let's just say it was not a pleasant conversation. And, I, and I'm standing there, and on one hand, there's this, like, argument that is starting to build for a rebuttal against the things that were being said. And then it's like Christ had a laser-guided missile right down to my conscience and said, poof, let's blow that up. And why don't you just let me live through you? Just let me live through you. And in those moments, my heart went from being irritated and bordering on resentment to, okay, Christ, you drive this thing. You take the wheel. Your foot is on the gas. And I can honestly say that I walked away from that conversation having no regrets because I believe that Christ helped me be surrendered to him and he was living with me in the moment. You see, there, there are challenges in all of our lives, relationally speaking. And we feel like, man, I have to prove myself to this individual. I have to prove my point to this individual. I have to win that. No, you don't, because justification says their opinion, I mean, love them, but their opinion does not matter. You're not justified by them. God justifies you. Some of you have been living in very difficult relationships. You regularly live your life by being alive to people, enslaved to people, so that they might approve of you, and eventually it really does become enslaving. Do you realize, Christian, that you don't have to live for their approval because in the gospel God has said, I accept you, I declare you innocent, I love you, I've given myself for you? I think of the teenager, you know, so many challenges going on right now in our world. And we've seen over the last, what, 15 years, the uptick in mental health challenges and anxiety and depression and all those sorts of things. So much of that comes down to how people view themselves, right? And I think about our young people, you know, just walking through life perhaps glum because the approval rating is not where they want it to be. I'm not justified in front of people. And yet, here's the truth of the gospel that our young people need to hear. Wait a second. God loves you. He gave himself for you, and Christ is in you right now. I think about marriages. The wife who's struggling in her marriage because her husband just won't acknowledge her or vice versa with the husband. And, and, and they're competing. They, they want to be recognized. They, they want to be loved. They, they want to be declared as being good and acceptable. And so they live in bondage to this idea that, man, I just have to get up to this standard. And once I get up to that standard, then I'll be accepted in my marriage. And again, this is how the gospel just permeates all of our life. We lay hold of it in faith, and God is saying, hey, come on back, son. Come on back, daughter. You have been accepted in my eyes. I declare you as innocent in front of me, and 
I've loved you and I've given myself for you. Do you realize that by trying to win people's approval, you are living counter to the basic elements of the gospel? Do you realize, here's the basic element of the gospel, that Jesus does love you and that he's given himself for you. He's given you far more than what any of them will ever be able to give you. So in that moment, when I'm trying to please them, I'm alive in the flesh. And what I need to do is say, God, man, I need to go back to the cross. I'm crucified with Christ. I'm all in with him. And I'm dead to that way of living. And I'm alive because Christ is in me. Who's alive in you this morning? What's alive in you this morning? As we go through this section, we see, man, we have such a wonderful gift as Christians. All right, so I'm going to surrender. I'm going to be dead to that law that's been enslaving to me. This week, by faith, I'm laying hold of this truth. Christ, you are alive in me, and I can live with the hope that you've loved me and that you've given yourself for me. I'm going to be alive with Christ this week. Let's pray.